Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are only a shadow of what is to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Take care that no one keeps you keeps defrauding you of your prize by delighting in humility and the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his flesh and mind, and not holding firmly to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together but the joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from the Lord, from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees as such? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All, which all refer to things destined to perish with use. In accordance with the commandments and teachings of men, these are matters which do have the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and humility and sever, uh, se severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. And now to the preaching of his word. You may be seated. <clears throat> I'm not sure if many of you remember, but I was going to do a sermon on Christ and his relationship to the beatific vision. We will save that for another time. Um, What's important for you to know, going forward, when you think about the heavenly vision that we will have of our God, when we see God face to face, that is to say, when our minds are raised to know him in a capacity that um, is far superior than it is here on earth, um, is that Jesus Christ plays an important uh, and essential role, and that is only in the Son do we see the Father. Only in the Son do we see the Father. There's much more things I could say on that, uh, but we will consider that for another time. We will look at the uh, last ver couple verses in um, Colossians chapter 2. Uh, this is a great um, milestone for myself, at least, because it means that we are almost done with the book of Colossians. We are in chapter 2. And next, or maybe in, or in two Sundays, we will begin in chapter 3, which I'm sure many of you uh, desire to, to get into. Um, there we have the famous uh, verses, Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. So those things, and talks about children and stuff like that. But for today, congregation, a very simple Easy message, but important message for us to all consider. And that is the very dangers and uh, uh, errors of us falling into legalism. The very danger and error of us falling into legalism. And also the superiority, the superiority of Christ uh, with respect to uh, what we have now in the new covenant uh, as opposed to what believers had in the Old Covenant. Believers definitely had Christ in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. However, they didn't have Christ in the manner in which we have him now. But before we get to there, St. Paul is addressing a problem in the church in Colossae, and this problem 
is this, that there are false teachers that are creeping into the church, that are trying to have some sort of influence amongst these believers. And they are preaching one of the most, probably if not the most, damnable heresy that a Christian could ever hear, that a person in general can ever hear. If there is, um, if there is any a time uh, and, and a subject or a doctrine in which all of us are to come together and rise up against, if there is one thing that we are to die on this mountain, it is the heresy of legalism. That itself, congregation, legalism, will not only destroy a church, but also it will destroy your soul. It will not only destroy the church, but also it will destroy the soul. For no legalist will enter into God's heavenly gates and be awarded the blessed vision of God. But in fact, legalists themselves, all legalists, are a great attack to the church of Christ. Legalism, then, is not an error. Legalism is not a mistake. Legalism is not a false doctrine, teaching. But legalism is heresy. It's heresy. It goes against everything the Word of God says concerning our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone ever presents to you some sort of legalistic teaching, the first thing you do is you run to the hills. You don't give that person the time, the day, your mental energy, your listening capacity. You don't give them anything of yourself. Because all of what they are saying is a lie from the pit of hell. I use strong language like that, congregation, because that is the severity of the heresy of legalism. That is how dangerous legalism is. What is legalism, then? Well, legalism, the the legalists, in their attempt to be holy, in their attempt to obey God's law, in fact, disobey God's law. Again, in their attempt to obey God's law, they disobey God's law. Because what they do is they forget the two greatest commandments themselves. You are to love the Lord your God with all of who you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And the type of love, though, that they have for God, and we will get to this in in, in just a moment, is not a love in which they love God, but rather they love God's law. They love God's law rather than loving God himself. But also, the type of love that they show toward the believer is not that I'm looking out for you. Don't do this, don't do that. But rather, if you do do this, you're going to hell. You're condemned already. The legalist then uses the law of God to condemn others. While also taking pride in themselves and their own ability to keep and obey the law. Johannes Voss, 
a great Reformed theologian, he says this concerning legalism. It's a wonderful quote. He says, legalism is a peculiar kind of submission to God's law. Something that no longer feels the personal divine touch in the rule it submits to. Let me read that one more time. Legalism no longer feels the personal divine touch in the rule it submits to. This quote is, I think, lovely because it gets at the very heart of legalism itself. The legalist is one who separates God from God's law. The legalist separates God's law from God himself. The legalist no longer sees God's law as coming from a loving Heavenly Father who has the interests of others, the best interests of others at heart, but rather sees God as one who just gives rules and they must obey them. We can say that the legalists know God's law. They surely do. But they don't know God's love. They know God's law in all of what he tells, but they don't know God's goodness. They don't know the great generosity of the love of God, the loving kindness of the love of God and who he is. We see this, saints, in the Garden of Eden. You see, legalism didn't begin when Christ stepped on the scene and he was amongst Pharisees. Uh, Legalism didn't begin in the Old Testament, but in the days of Moses, but rather legalism began in the very Garden of Eden. In fact, Satan himself, was the very first legalist that we find. Consider Eve's experience in the garden. When Satan tempted Eve, he said to her, did God actually say, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden? Now, technically, that is correct. God did not allow them to eat from every tree in the garden. God forbid them from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But that is not exactly what God said. God says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. And then he goes on to give one exception. What God actually said, saints, was not what Satan says. Did you notice the difference? God said, you may surely eat of every tree. And Satan says, you shall not eat of every tree. Well, what Satan said was, more or less, in some ways, true. What Satan did, as sly and as, as cutting as he is, he, he changed the narrative. He changed the narrative. Whereas God showed how generous he was in giving them every tree to eat except one, Satan turns the perspective around and focuses on God's restriction. Thus making God appear to Adam and Eve as unloving, as unkind. He gave off the impression that God does not have your best interests at heart. He does not love you. He does not care for you. Here, Satan does what every legalist does. He separates God from God's law. 
what God said and who he is. He separated God's goodness, his love, all of who he is from God's law. This is also what plagued the Israelites in the wilderness. As they were wandering, they were constantly doubting God's goodness, claiming that God brought them out of Egypt only to be in the wilderness to have them starve. The legalists then is a child of those wandering in the wilderness, thinking that God doesn't love them. The, 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 the legalist is a child of Satan. He's a the very production of Satan who separates the loving goodness of who God is from the very goodness of the law itself. This is what Christ says to the Pharisees, does he not? The Pharisees who are the premier legalists of legalism. Remember what Christ says to the Pharisees. So you too outwardly appear righteous to the people, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Lawlessness. The very same ones who were the gold standard in the people's eyes of keeping the law. Christ says you're actually full of lawlessness. There is no obedience to the law within you. The legalist, then, is no friend of God. He's no friend of Christ. And he is to be no friend to the Christian. In fact, the legalist makes a mockery of the cross of Christ. The legalist, he spits on the cross of Christ. Voss goes on to say, there prevails still a, 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 a subtle form of legalism which would rob the Savior of his crown of glory earned by the cross and make him a second Moses. Offering us the stones of the law instead of the life bread of the gospel. That's what legalists do. The legalist presents to you the two tablets of stone. But rather, we are to present the thorns that were on Christ's head. The nails that were pierced to his wrists. The blood in which he shed. We present to people Christ, not the two tablets of stone. Congregation, let us never be legalists. Let us never be legalists. I warn you all to guard yourselves. Because it's so easy for us to fall into such heresy. Very easy. Not merely just with doctrine, but also with how we live out that doctrine in daily practice. Many of us grew up in such legalistic churches. Many of us know and have experienced what it means to be a part of a legalistic society, a legalistic group of people. Growing up, my family attended a church that was highly infected with legalism. It was just oozing out of the majority of the people there starting from the top on down. And when my family decided to leave that church, what happened? It's what happens when Christians leave a church. Those Christians that left are no longer seen as Christians. Those Christians that left are no longer seen as a part of Christ. But they have actually been severed <laughs> From Jesus Christ. 
saints of God, <clears throat> if I learned anything about my upbringing in that church, it's that we aren't to treat our local church as if Christ founded and as if Christ only places his special presence only at our local church. You see, Christ is not found in Christ's special presence when two or three are gathered. It's not exclusive to Oasis Christian Center, the church that I grew up. And Christ did not found only, and his presence is only exclusive to Reformation Bible Church. Please don't ever think, congregation, that your local church is who saved you on the cross. That your local church, Reformation Bible Church, is who lived a life of perfect obedience unto the law for you. Or that your local church is who was raised from the dead for our justification. There are many who have left our church. And although I disagree with the manner in which some left, and I disagree with some of the reasons why some left, they're still, as best as I know, believers in Christ. And we are to show to them the same type of love that we showed to them when they were a part of this local congregation. And most especially when they're outside of this local congregation. I say that, saints, because this is what highly infects the church today. And may it never be that if one leaves this church, we treat them like an outcast. Depending on how they, you know, if they're, if they're, if they're not in total sin rebellion and all that, of course. We don't treat them as if now they are slaves to Satan. We must remember, congregation, that a person is not saved by Reformation Bible Church alone. Not saved by this local church alone. But a person is saved exclusively and only upon Jesus Christ. That is the basis. That is the root, the foundation of one's salvation. It's Jesus Christ. I must say this to you, congregation, because we could be so legalistic about the church that we go to, as if we're the only church on the block, and we're the only church that God looks down upon and is pleased with their worship. Also, we could be legalistic with what we believe as Reformed Christians, being reformed itself. If you're not reformed, then you're not as Christian as me. If you're not holding to what I believe, you're not as Christian, as saved as I am. May we never be legalistic about reformed theology. And if you are legalistic about reformed theology, then stop being reformed. Because clearly you don't understand what it means. To be first and foremost a Christian. A Christian. This extends to certain doctrines. This extends even to listening to certain ministers. There was a conference that just passed. Many of you went. Praise the Lord. 
But if I don't go to a conference, if Pastor Antonio doesn't go to a conference, don't let it stop you from going to a conference. I will never and he will never bind your conscience by going to something that will be fruitful and edifying for you. We will never be legalistic about don't go to this, but go to this. Don't read that, but read this. Why am I spending so much time talking about legalism? We can talk more about this. It's because, saints of God, this is the opponents that St. Paul is addressing. These are the people whom St. Paul is coming after. He is, in many ways, from 16, verses 16 to 23, he, he takes out his samurai sword and he dashes the pieces, all of the arguments that are being presented to these Colossae Christians. And there's a few things that we want to note. First, St. Paul says in verse 16, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Essentially, what St. Paul is saying this, don't let no one condemn you. Don't you let no one judge you. And that's the type of judgment that he's speaking of. Not a judgment in the sense of when he says, you know, don't let no one judge you with regard to food or drink. Not, not judge you in the sense of, hey, brother, your health is not the best. Maybe you should not eat that. That's not that type of judgment. But rather, it's if you eat this, you're going to hell. If you eat this, if you drink this, you no longer saved in Christ. It's here in these verses that we see that there are false teachers that are telling these Colossae Christians that they are to go back to the Old Testament. They're to go back to what they used to do. Specifically, the Old Testament, Old Covenant dietary laws. If they weren't keeping the feasts and the festivals of the Old Testament, you were not saved. You don't belong to God. In the Old Testament, dietary laws were given to the people of God. Feasts and holy days were were to remind people of God's goodness. Both were used to separate God's people from the rest of the pagan world. But here, St. Paul says, and here's the beauty of the gospel congregation, it's simply this, is that the things that were done in the Old Testament are no longer binding now. That is some of the greatest news for us as Christians here today is that all of what they did in the Old Testament no longer should be performed in this present day. No longer. They're not binding. With respect to food or drink, Jesus says in Matthew 15, after Jesus called the crowd to them, he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. Now, why were the dietary laws given? Well, there's a number of reasons why we can go through. But in giving the dietary laws, we can say one of the reasons was God was intending to keep the people of Israel clean from bacteria and other diseases. It was for them to distinguish clean things from unclean things. It was ultimately to translate over to the worship in the temple. But also... These dietary laws of don't eat this, don't eat that, 
were not merely to teach the people health, health of the body, but they were to teach the people spiritual health, spiritual health, meaning that the dietary laws were to teach people of their utter sinfulness and their need of one who will cleanse them from all eternity. That's why the dietary laws were given. That's why all the things were given in the Old Testament. It wasn't to perfect man on a natural level, but for them to see beyond, that is, into the very depths of their soul and who they are in relation to God. Not merely in relation to God, that I am good with God for a year, but rather I need to be good with God for all eternity. What the people of Israel needed most, what every man needs most, what we needed most and continue to need most is not our bodies healthy primarily, but for our souls to be healthy. And this is why the dietary laws ultimately pointed to Jesus Christ. Ultimately pointed to Jesus Christ. You know, an Israelite takes that lamb that they think that is pure and spotless. And they should ask themselves, we can't keep doing this every year. There has to be someone who will take away our filth and make us clean for all eternity. Pointing to the Messiah who was to come, Jesus Christ, as we know. But how does Jesus Christ then, how does he fulfill the dietary laws? In the dietary laws, there was a distinction that was to be made between clean and unclean animals, as I already said. Which ultimately pointed to the purity and cleanness of God's people. And the uncleanness of the pagan Gentiles. That's what ultimately these, these animals were pointing towards. Clean and unclean people. However, with the coming of Christ, the barrier, the great wall between Jew and Gentile has now been broken down. So that believing Jews and believing Gentiles, although they may be dirty, are clean by one lamb. By one lamb, who is Jesus Christ. St. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 2, 14-18, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the hostility which the law composed of commandments expressed in ordinances so that in himself he might make two one new person. In this way establishing peace so that he might reconcile both in one body to God through the cross. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, the Gentiles. And he came and preached peace to those who were near, the Jews. For though, for through him, we both have our access in one spirit to one Father. This verse 16, with respect to food and drink, connects to verse 21, where Paul says, Do not do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. In essence, what St. Paul 
doing, he's warning these Christians that these false teachers are trying to strip you away from the gospel of hope that you have in Jesus Christ. They're not trying to help you, they're trying to hurt you. And this is what St. Paul says in verse 18, take care that no one keeps defrauding you of your prize. That no one keeps defrauding you of your prize. This saints is a great warning for us as well. False teachers will come. You will hear many false teachers. And like so many false teachers, they will come with great arguments and give off the appearance as if they are wise. In fact, St. Paul says this in verse 23. He says, these matters are matters which do have the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and humility and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Here he's talking about a wrong type of view of asceticism. That is, that is not allowing yourself to indulge in bodily pleasures because in many ways you believe that the body is evil and your spirit needs to be freed. Here, St. Paul reminds and warns these Colossian Christians as he's warning us that these teachers will come with the greatest of arguments and they look like they have the greatest of wisdom. Look how holy they are. Look at what they're doing. But he says they're robbing you of your peace and of your prize in Jesus Christ. Congregation, have you ever met people like this? Have you ever met these type of people that St. Paul is speaking of? Are you yourself this type of person? There are many Christians who are very legalistic about eating and drinking. What they can eat and what they can't drink. In fact, what's the, what's the common, I guess in this day and age, consensus view of Christians today concerning drinking? No touching alcohol. You better not smoke a cigar. Those things do not touch, do not taste. They are loaded and come from the very fires of hell. (laughs) But saints, that is entirely false, is it not? The Word of God does not teach us to restrain from certain things, but rather to keep things under control. Under control. Can you smoke a cigar? Most surely you can. Can you drink some alcohol? Most surely you can. We aren't to be legalistic about these things and say that if a person does these things, then they are no longer a Christian. In fact, I heard one minister say that when he was young, he was a uh, restaurant uh, waiter and he was he was. Uh, waiting on some some people and he asked them do you want anything to drink here's our wine section they say no we don't drink wine he said oh okay yeah because we're christians we don't drink wine because we're christians the saints of god that is not the type of witness that we are to display to others as if christians don't drink wine don't do and indulge in these things. You're putting yourself then on a, on a pedestal in which the word of God does not place you on. 
or even watching certain movies, watching certain shows, watching certain things on television. Many of you come from that background where people in your own church were sort of like the police in which they would monitor the very things that you watch, the very clothes that you wear, and become so legalistic about it. Not having your best interest in heart in the matter of, if you watch this movie, it might mess with your spiritual soul, but rather, if you watch this movie, you are condemned. And certainly, saints, we aren't to have that type of extremist view when it comes to what we watch, what we wear, what we drink, what we put in our body. St. Paul speaks of this in Romans 14. The context, of course, is, as many of you know, do not allowing your brother to stumble. He says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on another di- another, any, uh, one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. He says, I know I am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. But what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and of joy in the Holy Spirit. Again, your holiness does not depend on you eat this and you eat that. Isn't that, I mean, it was so beautiful this morning and so insightful to hear of what holiness consists of when Pastor Antonio spoke of it. It doesn't consist of a uh, uh, nationality or of a bloodline. It doesn't, insist, insist, it doesn't consist of these are the very steps in which Jesus walked. This is, very, this is the very place where Paul preached. This is the very place in which it doesn't consist in that. It consists in whom is your righteousness? Whom do you cling to? It's Jesus Christ, of course. As we move on, St. Paul adds in addition to not letting anyone judge you concerning food or drink, he says, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Very controversial verse. Very hard verse. Let's make it plain, though. Here, St. Paul is making this point. And he's really just making the point, the same point all throughout is that at the coming of Jesus Christ, all of the Old Testament rituals, ceremonies, festivals, feasts, are done away with. That's the point. Plain and simple. That at the coming of Jesus Christ, all of what national Israel did is no longer to be done with. It is abolished. It is done away with. And St. Paul uses a triad of words here. Three words. He says, again, feast, new moon, or Sabbaths. Six times this triad of words is mentioned in the Old Testament. More, most predominantly, though, in Hosea chapter 2, verse 11. Where Hosea says, I will put an end, or I will also put an end to all her joy, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festivals. Isn't that very striking? The very thing that Hosea says in the Old Testament, 
predicting the, predicting the day when all the Old Testament ceremonies, rituals, feasts will be done away with, is the very thing that St. Paul says in the New Testament regarding all of the things that were done in the Old Testament are now done away with. You see, Hosea is predicting a day when it will be done away with, and St. Paul is saying it's done away with. It's over. He's echoing then Hosea because he knew that his Colossae Christians would know the Old Testament. They know the Old Testament. And they, he hearkens back to Hosea using a triad of words that they would know, that they would long for, that they would have a great understanding of, that what we are doing now, speaking of the Old Testament saying, what we are doing now will one day be done away with. And Paul then is referencing back to such prophecy, he's saying that what these Old Testament saints longed for has now has now been put to an end in Jesus Christ. Now let's just say real quick, real quick, he's not saying that the Sabbath day is abolished. Now there is a nuanced way in which we can talk about the abolishment of the Sabbath day, but not with respect to the ordinance and observation of the day. Again, He's not saying that Christians no longer are bound to strip away the Sabbath, but rather the fourth commandment, which what it is. That we are no longer bound to observe the fourth commandment. Surely we are not to observe it in the way in which the Old Testament Israelites did. But the fourth commandment is a what's called creation Ordinance. It has its foundations, its roots, not in Moses, but in God himself. He's saying, he's not saying that the fourth commandment is done away with when he says Sabbaths. As if we're no longer bound to observe the Sabbath day, but rather what he has in mind is all of those ceremonial laws and rituals and ceremonies and feasts and festivals that were done on the Sabbath. Are now done away with. Of course, things were done on the Sabbath. Of course, of course, there were feasts, there were there was things done on the Sabbath. And, and here, Saint Paul is saying it's not the day, but it's actually what's done on the day that is done away with. Saint Paul says in verse seventeen, "Why though? Why are they all done away with? These things are only a shadow of what is to come." But the substance belongs to Jesus Christ. Essentially what Jesus, or rather what St. Paul is saying is all that was done in the Old Testament was to prepare, prepare people for the coming of Christ. It was a, it was a shadow. That's what he says of the Old Testament and all of what they did then. It's merely a shadow of what is to come. He even says they're, they're, they're the ABCs of what is to come. Give us a shadow of what's to come. But the substance is Jesus Christ. Meaning that in the Old Testament, ceremonies, or rather, I should say this, in the Old Testament, by virtue of the ceremonies, by virtue of the feasts, by virtue of the festivals, 
by virtue of the new moon, by virtue of the Sabbaths, no salvation, no righteousness, and no remission of sins was ever offered. Again, by virtue of it. It doesn't mean that people weren't saved, but they weren't saved in virtue of what they did. No ultimate testament saint was no Old Testament saint was saved in the Old Testament because of the ceremonies, because of the feasts, because of the festivals. But they're saved only by faith in Jesus Christ. And St. Paul says that those things done in the Old Testament were merely just pictures of what's to come. It's sort of like, and many people have used this analogy before, it's sort of like looking at the picture of the one whom you love most dearly. And then she comes in the room and you pay her no mind and you continue to kiss. It's weird. Hug, have dinner with, you know, lay down in your bed with that picture. When the substance, the actual one is standing right there. St. Paul is saying it's kind of like that. Let's use a more modern example. Sort of like looking, I have an iPhone. You get an iPhone, you have the box, and the picture of the phone is on the box. When I get the phone, though, I don't keep looking at the box. In fact, the box is thrown away with because the substance of what it points forward to is here. Here's the great news, congregation, is that we are no longer in that Old Testament, Old Covenant age by which we are longing, awaiting, and looking for the substance that is to come. That we don't have shadows around us, but rather we have the very light himself was come down from heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. We have Jesus Christ. And not something, right? Not something that pictures Christ. I mean, this is the great dilemma of what we have now as Christians. We spoke of the beatific vision a couple of weeks ago. But we long to see our Heavenly Father in an unveiled face. But all of what we have now is just creaturely analogies, creaturely images. All we have is just these creaturely things that, that point to and give us a certain likeness of who God is, but not the very substance and the very essence of who God is himself. We are in many ways sort of like with respect to our final reward, like those Old Testament saints awaiting the very essence and substance of what we have. What's given to us now? Saints of God, the substance is Jesus Christ. I had this long thing drawn, uh, written out on how Christ fulfills all these Old Testament things. But John Gill says it better than me. Bear with me here. It's, it's, a, it's a long quote, but it's very good. And here he's just pointing out, and he's going to show how Christ fulfills all of the Old Testament. He says, the different meats and drinks, clean and unclean, allowed for or forbidden by the law, were emblems of the two people. I already mentioned this, the Jews and the Gentiles, one clean and the other unclean. But since these are become one in Christ, the distinction of meats is ceased. These shadows are gone, and also the different food of regenerate and unregenerate souls, the latter feeding on impure food. The ashes of husks of sensual lusts and or other of their works, the former of the milk and meat of the gospel. 
the wholesome words of Christ, the, and likewise the clean meat was a shadow of Christ himself, whose flesh is meat indeed, and whose blood is drink indeed. The holy days are feasts of the Jews. The Feast of Tabernacles of the Passover and the Pentecost were types of Christ. The Feast of Tabernacles, though it was in remembrance of the Israelites dwelling in tents while they came out of Egypt, yet also was a representation of the people of God dwelling in the earthly houses of their tabernacles here on earth, and particularly of Christ dwelling or tabernacling in human nature, of who likewise was born in the time of this feast. The Passover, as it was speaking of the deliverance, the celebration, deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt and of God's passing over their houses when he killed the firstborn of the Egyptians, was so a type of Christ, our Passover sacrifice for us. The Feast of Pentecost, our Feast of Harvest, the first fruits, was a shadow of the first fruits of the Holy Spirit in which Christ, having received, gave to the disciples on that day, Pentecost, and of the harvest of the souls be gathered under the gospel dispension of which the conversion of 3,000 on that day of Pentecost was, was made. The new moon was typical of the church, which is fair as the moon and receives her light from Christ, the son of righteousness. The Sabbaths were also shadows of the future things. He says here, he says here, the great release of debts the restoration of inheritances prefigured the liberty we have in Christ from sin, Satan, and the law. The payment of all our debts by Christ and the right we have through him in the heavenly incorruptible inheritance. The writer of Hebrews says it best, though. Hebrews chapter 8. Now, however, Jesus has received a much more excellent ministry. Just as the covenant he made it mediates is better and founded on better promises. For if that first covenant, if what they did in the Old Testament had been without fault, no place would have, would have been sought for a second. If the Old Testament was enough, if what they did in the Old Covenant was enough, and simply put, Christ was of no need to come. Was of no need to come. But here's the great news, congregation, is that what you have now today, is far greater, far more superior than what the saints did in the Old Testament. Because now you have the very substance of the one whom they were longing for, who is Jesus Christ. Everything, saints of God, everything that we do, everything that we have is better than the old. Think of also the things that you do on this day itself. This day itself points to, reminds us that what we have is better than what they have. Two, two, two ways. Just by us experientially. We worship on Sunday rather than Saturday. Which symbolizes, which signifies a greater deliverance than that was given in the Old Testament. That Jesus Christ defeated a greater foe than the foe that was defeated in the days of Moses. And that we do not wander in the wilderness. 
but rather we wander to Zion. We, we are pressing forward. We are, we are marching on, not wandering. We are marching on. We know where we are headed. We know where we are going. We're going to that very holy and heavenly city that Pastor Antonio spoke of so brilliantly this morning. We're going to be with our Savior. But also think of what we're going to do in just a moment. What type of bread do you partake of, saints of God? You partake of leavened bread and not unleavened bread. You see, in the Old Testament, they partake of unleavened bread, which means that and symbolizes the very, the very haste, the very, the very uh, quickness by which they had to prepare the bread and get out. But now, though, we partake of leavened bread. It says that we don't got to rush. We ain't got to go nowhere in a quick you know, manner. Because Jesus Christ has done it all. We have peace. We have no foes to worry about. There's no Egyptian guards that we are to be fearful of. There's no demon that could enter into us. There is nothing that could sever our relationship and our peace with God. The wine that we drink. Oh, the wine that we drink. Symbolizes not just a spotless lamb. Not any old spotless lamb, but rather the eternal Son of God made man for us. When you drink this wine in just a few moments, saints, think of this. That all of your efforts to try to earn your way to God was destroyed on the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, you can say that on the cross of Jesus Christ, it put the death to man's attempt to climb Jacob's ladder and attempt to be right with God. It put the death to man's attempt to by his own merit, by his own works, by who he is in and of himself, to make peace with God. Lastly, as we close, St. Paul warns these Christians about false teachers who appeal to their imaginary visions. Verse 18, take care that no one keeps defrauding you of your prize by delighting in humility and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. It's very interesting that the people whom St. Paul is speaking of is the very people whom we, at least myself, don't like. He says, defrauding you of your prize by delighting in humility. Saints of God, if you delight in your humility... If you say anything positive about your humbleness, if you go around saying that I am, or rather I thank God that I'm a humble person, then there is a 100% chance that you're not a humble person. But taking a stand on visions, I'm not going to draw this out because we can say a lot on this. In fact, Pastor Antonio is more equipped saying a lot more on this. But visions are a scary thing. Telling, or rather, someone telling you, you know, last night the Lord said something to me. I'm not talking about saying something to me by way of 
reading his word and being illuminated, but rather I heard a voice. I heard something. Something was there, and it was it was calling to you, speaking of you. I had a vision. I had a dream. Mormonism was founded on a vision. Islam was founded on a vision. Much of the crap that you see in Christianity, in these large arena type stadium arenas, <laughs> are based on men having visions. Saints of God, if anyone tells you they had a vision, they had a dream, they had some sort of epiphany, God spoke to them, run. Just run. Just run. Don't pay him no mind. You might say, well, God can do that though, right? Can't God give visions? Can't God give dreams? Can't God... Well, consider what God says. God, after he spoke long ago to the Father and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, in whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. What are you looking for dreams for? What are you looking for visions for? What's the point of trying to reach for something that's imaginary? When you have God in its very word, we don't need nothing else. We don't need anything else. We have God and we have his word that has been Perfectly. You see, that's the thing about people who hold on to these visions and dreams. God's word is not perfect enough. It's not, it's, not, uh, it's not enough for us. Oh, saints, if God's word was enough for Christ, if God's word was enough for Peter, God's word was enough for our beloved St. John, whom we are going through in that beloved book of Revelation, if it was enough, and when the book was closed, the book was closed, then it's enough for us. Amen. Not to be, and it should be, and it is enough for us. Saints of God, the great, the great, the great message of this sermon is twofold. Number one, don't be a legalist. Beware of legalists. Stay away from legalists. Do not become a legalist yourself. And also, too, Look of all the great things you have in Christ. The great, great things you have in Christ. When you read your Old Testament, Amen. read it as a great picture Amen. of whom is to come and take great delight that the one whom all of this is pointing toward has come and I'm united to him. I'm united to him. And he knows me. I know him. He loves me. I love him. This is the conclusion of chapter 3. We'll begin, or rather chapter 2, and we'll begin chapter 3 in just a few Lord's Days. Let's pray.